Gang, welcome back to Adventure Fit Radio. I'm sitting here with Bill. How are you, mate? Good, good, good. Excellent. We uh, had a massive chat with um, Michael Cashew, um, spelt C-A-Z-A-Y-O-U-X, just um, just in case you want to have a look up. Um, really interesting guy. He's actually the the CEO of Brute Strength and Conditioning. Is it Brute Strength and Conditioning? Oh, just, brute strength. just Brute Strength. Just Brute Strength. Yeah. yeah. So. Probably should have figured that out in the four hours <laughs> we were talking. Um, and... Uh, we spoke, he's got a really interesting story to tell. He um, he actually went to drug and alcohol rehab at the age of 17 after getting into some strife as a kid. He um, found CrossFit, found mindfulness meditation um, to be a, a huge server and helper um, along the way. Um, he went to the games under Tax Pack with uh, old mate Tommy Hackenbrook and now focuses on the coaching side of, uh, of things. Really, really interesting. What do you think of the show? Yeah, it was good. I liked it. He had a lot of good uh, good points of view on different uh, training regiments and the way that he programs for his athletes. So, yeah, and getting into the, the whole mindset of um, battling addiction was pretty cool. So, yeah, I thought it was a good one. Loved the tribute, didn't he? Mm, that was a good tribute. Do you like the tribute? You'll like it. Yeah. You'll like it, guys. I reckon. <laughs> um, so, uh, before we get into the show, guys, uh, we've got some sponsors and they are Audible audibletrial.com forward slash ADVF radio will get you 30 days free audible trial and a free audio book. So to put that into perspective, guys, I, over the last um, week, I've finished the Bulletproof Diet, which is, um, so I'm thinking about um, trying out the ketogenic diet for a bit more mental mental, uh, liquidity. And uh, Tommy's pulling stupid faces at me (laughs) as we talk right now, so pretty high-end stuff we are. Apologies. The Bulletproof Diet was awesome. I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad at the uh, behest of my business coach and I read Animal Farm because I wanted to read Animal Farm. That was in the last week uh, just because I've had time and getting all this information in can't be a bad thing. So if you guys want to get into some audiobooks, you'll get one month free trial, one free book at www.advf... I mean www.audibletrial. <laughs> <laughs> Dot com forward slash ADVF radio. It's good, isn't it? It's awesome. You reading an audiobook at the moment? Yeah. Listen to uh, Seven Effective Things Successful People Do. Ah. Yeah. That's one of the ones I want really to listen good. to next. One of the things is meditating. Yes. How's we're, that? We're, 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 one, we're six steps we're away one, from being successful one from people. Seven. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. And our next, our next uh, sponsor, guys, is Adventure Fit Travel. So we've just released our Philippines trip, which is pretty bloody exciting we've got uh cliff jumping bit of zip lining bit of uh free diving we're training with dimitri clock off heaps of cool stuff going on guys basically if you uh if you want to have a good time and you want to see the philippines check out what they're about then head to www.adventurefittravel.com and um you can you can have a look at the uh, at the at the trip so that's pretty much it from us mm. enjoy the show mm. Now, before we do this, let's go over the ground rules. Rule number one, no touching of the hair or face. And that's it. Yo. Discovery Roger, go for deploy. Where did we come from?
of some kind never even considered for mass production. Too weird to live, too rare to die. Alrighty, here we are, guys. We are sitting with uh, Michael Cashew, owner of Brute Strength. Um, I've got Tommy on my left, as usual. And before we throw to Mike and introduce him, we're just going to start off, as usual. I hope you're ready for it, Mike, with uh, with Tommy's tribute. Alrighty, thanks for coming on the show, Mike. Um, now, question: Do you know the band Puddle of Mud? Yes, I do. Alrighty, are you a fan? Yes, definitely. I, I think I only remember. Uh, one very sad song yeah. that I love. So let, let's see. Let's no, see what you got. Was it by any chance She Hates Me? Yes, of course. Oh, dude. <laughs> All right. Of course. I've, <laughs> I've, covered, I've covered She Hates Me and uh, put a bit of a, uh, a spin on it. So we'll see how we go. All right. There's a guy. His name is Mike. He started brood, well it's something I like It's going well, it's been around for a while Makes you not want to walk down the sugar aisle This dude is ripped and he's got a shaved head Bill said that Mike would do well in his bed I've been looking forward to this dude I really hope this song puts him in a good mood So Mike, I hope you like this song and now I hope you don't fucking hate us. No, 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 no. I hope you love us. Yeah, 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 yeah. I tried to sing to you in a way that you find funny. Let's hope it was good. I can't understand if you never want to give us money. Welcome to the show. Na 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 There you go. I am so fucking wet over here. Not the first time we've heard that. That's one of the best things ever anyone's ever done for me. Awesome, man. So, Mike, that's our that's our regular intro. welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited. That was the uh, the best intro I've ever seen. <laughs> awesome, dude. That's good. So, um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Mike? You're um, you're over there in the states. A little bit about yourself, your background, and uh, and what it is you do. Well, I currently live in Santa Cruz, California. My girlfriend and I have lived here for the past six months. I grew up originally in Louisiana. Spent the first 17 years of my life there went off to Utah to go to drug rehab when I was 17, like I said. Uh, spent a couple years going through that whole process, and I decided to stay in Utah. And I was in all parts of Salt Lake City, started college at the University of Utah, studied psychology, and oh. somewhere in there, right, actually right after I got out of rehab, uh, I, I ran a marathon, kind of got tired of uh, – Tired of running, actually totally burnt out on running, and I didn't know I didn't have another outlet for fitness, and that's around the time that my buddy introduced me to CrossFit. And about six months later, I met Tommy Hackenbrook. We competed against each other in this local competition that he called Fitness Elevated, 
And by the end of the day, um, I had impressed him enough to invite me over to his gym. So I, I switched gyms, and that's when we started. Um, we started a team that ended up going to the games that year. This was 2011, and that was my first year competing in the Open. And we ended up, we had a really good team. We went to the games, and we placed ninth. After that, we decided, and when I say we, uh, me, Tommy, uh, we brought in Adrian Conway, we had Taylor Richards Lindsay, and we brought in Mary Lampus, as well as Aaron Binion, and we formed what was uh, then Hacks Pack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was a completely new team. And, and from, as soon as we developed that team, it was all on the premise that we want to win the CrossFit game. So each one of us knew that we had a shot at making it to the games as an individual. I was kind of a long shot. I was like the weakest link. Um, but I was still, you know, I was still play, placing around 10th in the open. So I had, you know, I had a decent well, shot of going by well. myself. So and, and all of those guys were better than me. Right. So yeah. almost all of us could qualify as individuals. But the deal was none of us wanted to make it to the games and get, you know, 36th place when we could team up. And we had a shot at winning it. So yeah. that first year, we really had no idea how good we were. We, we knew we would be good because of the sum of all, of all of the parts, but we didn't know how we would work as a team. So uh, that first year winning was really that was the most exciting year because we, we had no idea. Like I said, we were all um, just new to the, to the team environment. I had, me and Mary had competed the year before, obviously, but the rest were completely new. We worked out harder than ever. We were kind of the first team to uh, have six people devoted to basically treating it like a uh, like we were professional athletes, right? Mm-hmm. We trained three or four hours a day. We recovered for say an hour a day. We took extra naps, ice baths. Uh, our nutrition was on point, or at least some of us. Uh, we were, and we were just you know we were the first group of six to really take it seriously and be all in now there are many many teams doing that and uh you know just phenomenal teams out there but i think we really were the first one to do that and then we you know we were able to train just as hard that following year and we had the same result we uh we dominated and it was uh it was one of the best experiences of my life very very exciting after 2013 uh, or, or a little bit before that second year, I found out that I was gonna have I was gonna have to have back surgery. I had a pre-existing condition called spondylolisthesis, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically like a slipping forward of the of the spine, and I had stress fractures in my spine and stuff like that. And it was really bad to the point where I couldn't feel below my knees. Ooh, so, so whenever when it, when we were done with the games, I knew my you know quote unquote career was over. So that was that was the last competition that I ever entered. Uh, five months later, I had a spinal fusion of L4 and 5, which basically means they pushed my spine back into place yep. and screwed it back and screwed it together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then let's so that's my that's my competitive career. Coaching started in you know say 2011, right around the same time I started CrossFit, I began coaching. I start I, at that time. I was just coaching CrossFit classes. Took the L1, L2, um, you know, weightlifting course, all of that kind of stuff. In 2013, when I graduated college, I was offered a position to be a uh, strength and conditioning coach at Southern Utah University. 
Mm-hmm. And that's where that's where my love of strength and conditioning really, really took off. Before, I, I kind of just wanted to be a physical therapist or something completely different. I never really considered making being a coach a full-time job. Mm-hmm. But as soon as they offered me that position, it was like very exciting to me. So I, I, I thought of it as a way to mix, you know, something that was uh, intellectually stimulating that I could learn a ton as well as fulfilling because I get a chance to interact with these kids on a daily basis. So sure. that, that's where it took off. Um, I, I started to learn a ton. Uh, I was actually talking to Pat Barber about this earlier, uh, kind of my education background. Mm-hmm. I, didn't, I didn't have like an exercise science degree, uh, undergrad degree. My, my first real exposure, like formal exposure to that was uh, the college strength and conditioning certification I studied for and took that test within two weeks to get into a master's course uh, at Southern Utah where I was coaching and ended up uh, completing about 90% of a master's degree in sports performance and conditioning and I'll probably never finish that degree. Uh, I don't don't find it useful at all to me anymore. So, uh, you know, I just, I probably will never finish it. Mm, Most of my education came from just devouring article after article and, and book after book of some of the best strength coaches in the world, like Charles Poliquin, Mike mm-hmm. Boyle, yep. uh, Eric Cressy, uh, Gray Cook, all of those, all of those folks. Um, there's so much just free information out there online and practical and, and, and more like down to earth where you don't necessarily need a master's degree to understand what they're talking about. That's where most of my education came from, as well as, I, I was just the type, I wasn't afraid to, you know, jump in head first and, and kind of get my hands dirty. I, I started programming for people pretty early on and, and prescribing kind of corrective exercises for friends and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm just very, very curious. And so I would take, you know, what worked, what didn't and, and start to like hone my craft, if you will. And that's, so that's how, how it all started for me. Beautiful. Um, yeah. Beautiful. Well, before we go any further, and obviously we're going to cover off on um, on brute strength and how that all started, and uh, and where you're at now, and and um, the future for for brute strength and yourself. Let's take it. Um, you just gave us so much information, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to take you made it. Us wet, mate. <laughs> <laughs> we, let's um let's take it back to the start. So you've got this thirst for um you, for performance. You want to better yourself. Obviously, you've had the back surgery, but you've you've had this competitive athlete side of your life. Now you're, uh, you're, you're trying to be the highest level coach that you can get yourself to. But you did mention that you went through some troubled times, obviously, and you went through mm. rehab. So as, as, a, as a child, did you have this, did you have this quest for um, health and fitness and, and, and it went wrong? Or where did, how, did you, how, did your childhood, how did your childhood go? And, um, and tell us a little bit about that because that was the first interesting point that we, we went through. Uh, I was by most accounts, a very, uh, normal kid, like super, super active, played a lot of sports. I was, I was really polite and a, and a good kid, uh, somewhere around honestly age nine. Uh, I always, I'll back up. I, I always wanted to be the cool kid and I'm yeah. sure a lot of, a lot of pe- most people, if not everyone can relate to that, yep. but I was just I am willing cool I never got there. <laughs> right. <laughs> just kidding. Just know. You just know. Yeah. Um, I was willing to go to very, very dangerous lengths 
to be the coolest kid in the room. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that started out as, you know, age nine, I'm in, it's my birthday party, my ninth birthday party, and there's some whiskey in my grandmother's cabinet, and we're having like a slumber party or something like that, and there's some whiskey, and again, I want to be the cool kid, so I say, hey guys, let's take some some shots. And, you know, I don't know how it is like all around the world, but in Louisiana where I grew up, you know, I had probably taken lots of sips of my parents' beers and mixed drinks and stuff like that. So this wasn't necessarily like a crazy, crazy thing to do. The fact that I was doing it on my own was maybe, you know, the first of of many red flags. Yeah. Uh, You know, the next thing, uh, the next thing on the, on the totem pole was I, I bought a carton of cigarette no somewhere somewhere down the line I, I smoked a cigarette with my uh, my buddy's older brother then I go to school and I buy a carton of cigarettes from my friend uh, again just because I, I, I want everybody to know that I bought the carton of cigarettes yeah. uh, not that I necessarily wanted to smoke the cigarettes I had a uh, I had a friend and, that used to he used to bring cartons of cigarettes to school and Sell them for fifty cents. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ! Entire, I used to bring Pokemon cards to school. Cart- Fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's exactly right. But um, yeah. So a go cigarette on. or a cart? No, no. He bought the carton. He would buy a carton of cigarettes and he would bring them. He would pack them all in his secret zip in his school bag, and then all the kids would come because there were so many smokers in high school, you know. And all the kids would come up to him, yeah. and that, he would sell them for fifty cents. So he was making, he was like tripling his money. He was Jeez. a real young entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah! And now like that's that. isn't that yeah. isn't that isn't that Gina Reinhardt now? <laughs> Gina Reinhardt's the richest woman in Australia, just so you know, Michael. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So so you started smoking. How old were you when you first started smoking? Um, I think I was nine, and this yeah. wasn't a regular thing at all. But by the time I was twelve, it was um, you know a couple days a week. By the time I was fourteen, fifteen, it was a pack a day. Wow. And actually, when I started CrossFit, it was a pack a day, and that was kind of you know I was kind of like. I can either keep smoking or I can keep doing this fucking crazy fitness thing. I can't keep doing, but I can't do both at the same time because sure. this hurts like a motherfucker. Yeah. Sure. So backing up, I w- you know at the time I was playing a lot of sports. Um, I, I I got to be 13 years old and and tried smoking weed. I loved the I loved the feeling of doing something behind my parents' back. Uh, I always I always have. I never liked to be told what to do at all. I liked full independence of, of everything. And I, so I liked doing this behind my parents' back. I liked the feeling I got of being around these people that I thought were cool because they were, you know, rebellious and, and, and people, other people thought they were cool. And that was kind of just, you know, it was one thing after the next. I, I was never afraid to try the, the next biggest and hardest drug. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why. I was, I'm, I'm a fairly intelligent person, but I was not afraid of the side effects at all. You know, this is gonna just gonna kill your brain cells. This is gonna you're not gonna perform as an athlete. Yeah. And for some reason, I thought it was cooler to do drugs and follow these types of people than to look up to athletes, right? I, I always loved sports. That was probably one of my first word was a ball, right? It was ball. Yeah. And for some reason I just I was more concerned with being cool. Probably out of some 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 kind of insecurity and anxiety, I definitely dealt with you know some some social anxiety as a kid. But that's that's all where it started, and it developed into you know just a, a straight up drug addiction. I, I I had physical dependence on opiates, 
And despite, uh, you know, despite several run-ins with the law, totaling my truck, uh, you know, ruining relationships, et cetera, et cetera, I just continued to use until, um, until it was, you know, I had, I had left a lot of destruction in my path. And yep. then that's when it was, you know, just time to go to rehab and it, and it worked really well. And was it, um, was it, see, I had a, I went through a similar upbringing, definitely not nine years old and definitely not probably to the same, uh, the same level of what you've spoken about. But I, I, um, I had a friend that went through this, a similar, similar scenario and, and I went to check on him one day, um, on a Sunday after a really big party that we'd had and he was on all fours, um, on all fours his floor was carpet and he was on all fours and he um i asked him what he was doing and he looked up at me and he said that he crushed a pill like an ecstasy pill he said i crushed a pill in the carpet the other day help me find it and uh and when he said that i picked him up off the ground and threw him up against the wall and asked him i said do you realize what you just fucking said to me and this is when (laughs) me and me and the boys like we were we felt bad about it but we called his parents we're like hey you know this is this is going kind of a little too far that was like that was the straw that broke the camel's back. But it, was it something that what pushed you to rehab? Was it was it your parents, or did you make the decision yourself, or was it your friends? Oh, it was it was definitely external factors. Uh, I was going to get expelled from school for um, just make, just I made a huge mistake, and I was going to get expelled. And my parents kind of made a deal: Hey, we'll send him to rehab if you don't like put this on his record. So I, I knew I needed help. I didn't want to ask for it, and I definitely didn't believe that I was really sick. I just need, I thought I needed to be removed from my environment for a little bit. It did it. it I, I slowly, slowly realized that the the issue was much deeper than that. After you know years of abusing myself and you know kind of just restructuring my brain, if you will. So it was it was my parents that that pushed me out for sure. I was still seventeen, so I was a minor. I had no choice. For sure, and. All right, so so you've gone through rehab, um, and then on the on the you said it worked really well. Um, obviously, you are recovered. What are the what are the percentages? Do you keep in touch with anyone that else that recovered? Like what out of the system that you went through? How many people come good and and start a new life? Well, I'll, I'll tell you this: my best friend in the entire world is from that that community and a lot of like the, the recovery community, a lot of my closest friends to still to this day are awesome from the first rehab that I went to. I, I couldn't tell you an exact number, but I, I can tell you that several of them died. Right. Um, and a lot of them, what would happen is they would get, you know, a, a lot of them would, they would do well right out, out of the gate. They, and then they would just, they would fall back into uh, old patterns, old behaviors, and get worse than they were. And then now today, a lot of them have recovered and they're doing better than ever. But I, I haven't, I haven't really kept in touch with much of the people from that uh, original community. I know in general, the statistics, depending on what drug you're talking about, but opiates especially is like five to eight percent of people make it. Uh, wow! Wow! So it, it's it is terrible. It's terrible. Do you think it's something where I mean, CrossFit, you know, uh, Bill's had some experience with CrossFit. I'm into my CrossFit. It's such a, an adrenaline-fueled sport, and it can, you know, obviously we all know it can become so addictive. Do you think that CrossFit, in a way, helped fill the, the gap that the drugs had on you after you sort of came out of rehab? Because I know that a lot of people continue to fight with, with drug addiction and stuff, and they never really find something that can, they're so passionate about 
not that they're passionate about drugs, but um, they can never find something where it um, it just engulfs them so much like it does. Do you think CrossFit really helps you um, along the path um, with rehab? It, it's on the list of the, it's on the top five list of things that helped my recovery for sure. Yeah. And I don't I don't think it's unique to CrossFit necessarily, but for me, I think it was important that it was something that was physical that also really really challenged me psychologically right yeah the uh the the you know you have that uh fight or flight response in the middle of a crossfit workout like that slowly started to change my mind the community aspect was amazing being a part of a team going to the games like Mm. that was that was my purpose for a while right and i think most alcoholics addicts anyone with mental affliction a lot of people with mental affliction and that's the biggest thing that they're missing like some some kind of purpose or some kind of community or cause to be a part of and i had you know i found mine luckily when i was 19 20 years old and it didn't take till i was 30 40 50 years old to figure it out for sure find it for sure hey can i before we before we move on from the whole um rehab and drug thing what are the other four factors that you just mentioned? You said it was in your top five. What are yeah, the other four yeah. things that, that pulled you out of it? That's a great question. And I'll say, yeah. So the first one would have to be service to other people. Yep. And that can look like anything. For me, that looked like helping other alcoholics and drug addicts recover the same way I did, right? You learn first. You learn, and then you master something by teaching it to others. Right? That was that was like my maintenance plan of recovery was the service to others, and and in a way that is that is one of the things that keeps me, uh, you know, happy, free, content, and fulfilled in life today. And it's not like it's not, I don't work with other alcoholics anymore. I don't. I almost never go to like a soup kitchen or, or any kind of formal service like that. But it is absolutely on the forefront of my mind to think about how can I be a better person. Yep. And I am, I, I, you know, I make mistakes, fucking constantly, selfish mistakes. Uh, you know, treat pe- people poorly, feel things like jealousy. But it is always on my mind, and I'm consciously and actively like looking for ways that I can become a better person. Yep. Uh, and treat people, other people, better. It, it's crazy what it does to my mind when I treat other people better. Yeah, right? for sure. So that's that would be number one. Number two would be, um, you know, working on being present. And, the, you know, for me, the, the way that I've worked on this the most through the past eight years is uh, mindfulness practice, and that's like sitting meditation. And I've done, I've done lots of different forms of sitting meditation, but once I learned how to carry that over into my daily life, like some things really started to change. And, uh, and still to this day, the more I meditate, the more like level headed I am, the less I get caught up in emotions like anger or depression or things like that. And it's not that I don't feel those things anymore, but when those things come up, I'm able to feel them fully. And then they just, they just pass. Right. Whereas in the past, if I start, start feeling if i start feeling lonely sad scared i might let it turn into anger right i might start telling myself like 
uh, I'm lonely because so-and-so isn't here right now. Fuck that person. Uh, you know, she's supposed to be here with me right now. It's her fault. Uh, and, and then create these stories, right? We all have these stories surrounding emotions. So the more, you know, in the past, again, those, those stories led me to drink more and more and more. And that's one of the ways I justified drinking and using all these drugs. Yeah. Um, what, do you want me to keep going or no, no, that's, that, that's, I mean, that's cool. That, that's cool. That, we, that's yeah. enough. That's funny that's that you so mentioned, interesting. Yeah. it's funny that you mentioned the, the mindfulness myself and Tommy, um, very, very big on, um, on meditation as well. Tommy's, Tommy's kind of been my, one of my guys that I go to, to discuss things of a personal matter. You know, I, I dealt with a little bit of social anxiety and, and stuff like that. And I've kind of knocked it on the head, but I go through phases myself with meditation where I'll come in um, I'll, I'll meditate every day for two weeks and I'll be feeling great and then I'll feel, feel really good and I'll forget about it for three weeks from time to time and then I'll start to get, like you say, those, those like jealousy and, and just negative, you know, negative mindset on everything and then, and then I'll kind of realize, not realize why, but I'll realize I have an out and my out is, fuck, I just got to start putting 10 extra minutes in a day and then it, um, I couldn't agree more that it just clears everything away, I think, clears the clutter. Um, it's interesting too. Like a lot of people say, I don't have time for that. Oh, yeah. But literally, the the research shows if you spend the ten minutes a day doing this for yourself and clearing your mind and recharging your mind, you're going to be more efficient and effective, and you're not going to need as much time because you're going to be more productive. And do you know it's what crazy I find? How it works. What 100%. I find really funny about that when people say people say I don't have time, and this is going off a little bit of a tangent. People say I don't have time for for anything. It's like how, you know, sure, that can be anything. I, I really feel that peop- you always have time for anything you want. You just have to prioritize more efficiently. But exactly. to say that you don't have time for your own health is just such a sad thing, especially when we've only got sort of 80, 90 years here. It's like, do you want to be like happy and whole, you know, the whole life or do you want to just keep putting it off? It's like, give yourself 10 minutes a day and live a fucking sick life, you know? Mm. That's great. All right, let's, yep. let's, let's get into some... So you teamed up, um, or you, you, you jumped... Into um, into CrossFit and then you you joined um, you joined Ute CrossFit I imagine or you started training with Tommy Hackenbrook and you're in the you're in the Ute CrossFit team. So when you guys you talked about the first year that you won the games and you were the first guys to take it really seriously as a as a, a team of it was a team of six as a team of six still in 2011 right? Correct. Yes. So so you say you you trained as a team and you took it very seriously. Did you train as partner and group workouts throughout the majority of that year? Did how did it differ the training compared to a regular weekly training and and programming for an individual athlete? Uh, five to ten percent were team workouts. The rest resembled all, like very closely to the way that we still train individual athletes to this day. Right. And usually, the, all that meant was for three to six months out of the year on Saturdays, those would be dedicated team days and we would do a lot of odd object stuff and like team oriented stuff where we had to work together, not where we were working individually. And, uh, at, you know, when we were nearing regionals and nearing the games, we, we would also throw one workout on Thursday that was similar. But other than that, it was exactly, you know, the same as you would see in an individual athlete. Okay. And Does that you guys, answer your question? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you guys, but you guys were all housed in the same gym. You're all throwing down 
together at the same time? How much kind of camaraderie and banter and, and day-to-day stuff? Or, or were you just following your own program and getting it in when you can? Just I'm trying to get a picture of how closely you guys worked with each other day-to-day and how much you saw each saw of each other you know, face-to-face time while you're actually in the gym. That's a great question. The three days a week, we had mandatory team training. And again, we're, we're, do, we're training as individuals on that Tuesday and Thursday, but we knew the importance of pushing each other. So Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday were all mandatory team days. So those were, that's you know three to five sessions on those days uh, total. The other, you know, say seven to 10 sessions a week, we were training in small groups. Yep. Does that make sense? Yep. Um, we were, you know, we were pretty lucky. I know a lot of teams don't have, don't have the luxury of, of kind of their, their schedules meshing like that. Most of us, let me think about this. Uh, five of the six of us were full-time CrossFit coaches. Yep. Right. Actually, no, four of the, four of the six, and then one just had a super flexible schedule and we were just able to get together uh, more often than most teams. And we also, we just saw the, um, how important it was, right, to get together because whenever we were together, we just had, uh, we, we went to another level. Yep, for sure. How did you, did you have anything like, um, to, to just to keep a really good competitive environment? We did. We did some time uh, on one of our Adventure Fit holidays in New Zealand with Richie Patterson. Richie Patterson's a, a weightlifter. He's a he's going to Rio this year. That'll be his third Olympics. He's New Zealand's um, New Zealand's premier weightlifter at at the moment. He won gold at the Commonwealth Games last year, which uh, sorry two years ago, which was a good achievement. Anyway, Richie Richie's gym houses um, houses. Let's say I think it's about thirty percent of the New Zealand records that are, that are held by current lifters it just it's a breeding ground for New Zealand's best weightlifters and Richie's the head of that and they have like on a Friday they'll all train together and then um, it'll be something like hey Richie if I can like Cam, Cam McTaggart's a little guy and he was a junior he, he would say hey if I can uh, if I can jerk if I can out jerk your snatch today you have to buy me a burger tonight they would have they would set little and this was actually something that Richie implemented as a tactic this wasn't just friends bantering on it's something that he built into his community right. and friendly competition friendly competition yeah. that he 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 just eased in and promoted to try and get some healthy banter some good competitive um, yeah. and he, that was what he used he used um, dares and and um, and incentives and you have to shout me this or you have to do that you have to clean the gym and that brought just another level to all like lots of good banter and, and friendship and a bit of fun but also mm. a good level of competitiveness did did you guys have anything like that or was it a pretty good competitive atmosphere? Uh, yeah. It was a great competitive atmosphere. Um, and, and that's the most important part, right? So honestly, it was a small group. And so the three guys, like we didn't, most of the time we didn't need to say a thing, but all three of us hate losing so much. Yeah. We went all out every single time. Like it, it literally didn't even need to be talked about. If the energy was down, um, a, a lot of times me and Taylor would just start, start talking some shit and yeah. that was, you know, super fun for me. It kept everything light. And then every now and then I would, I would be able to like annoy one of the guys enough to, you know, go in a little bit harder, whatever that is. But culture in a gym is 
the most important thing. It needs to be protected and it needs to be grown organically. You can't, you, you just can't fake it, right? Yeah. Mm, yep. Sure. You really got to be friends with the people that you're with every day. You really do. Absolutely. Yep. Um, okay, so when you were training as a team, I just want to see. So these days in CrossFit, we spoke with, um, with Mitch Cinnamon, who qualified for the Games last week, and he said um, he came from a gym where the, the training was five hours a day, six days a week, re- um, um, in one or two sessions. It, was just, it took up a lot of his time. And I know that f- through 2008, 9, 10, it wasn't so much that. 11, 12, 13... 14, it probably built to that. And then a lot of athletes that we've kind of spoken to lately, it's kind of tapered back off. Mitch, for example, now he does a quality two-hour session in his day, tons of rehab, but that's his programming sorted. How, like, has anything changed for you in the last five years from 2011 till now? or And how much training is jammed into a regular day for you guys? Or in 2011? So in, terms, in terms of volume... We probably have increased a little bit, uh, but I, 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 there, the, the answer is there's no right way to train. Yep. It, you, have to, you have to pay attention to how your body is responding. Are you, you know, getting tired? Are you not looking forward to going to the gym? All of those signs of overtraining. Uh, until you have those, you can probably keep pushing if you're at, like, a, say, a games level. But a typical day in our games prep program, the people that are you know trying to make regionals and the CrossFit Games, it is between two and say three and a half hours a day. A lot of our program now, compared to back when I was training, includes like much more in depth progressions because we have people of all skill levels involved, and we progress people from ve- you know the very base of gymnastics up to things that we're not even seeing in gym, in CrossFit yet. So uh, we, we, you know, we include 20, 30 minutes of gymnastics daily. We have, like we did when we were training, we have in-depth warm-ups that include injury prevention stuff, um, you know, mobility work, stuff like that. And then we also have more directed endurance work from Chris Henshaw, which a lot of times will take a little bit longer. But in general, it hasn't, you know, the overall structure of the program, the amount of volume hasn't changed much. Okay, cool. Um, well, what we do, what we'll do, Michael, before we, um, before we jump into um, a little bit more about training and, and get into brute strength, you're starting brute strength and so forth. Um, we're going we're gonna to go to the good, the bad and the science. So this is Tommy's segment. He's going to run us through a little bit of news. You ready for it? Ready. All right. <laughs> good man. Alrighty, so basically, mate, uh, we've got the good, the bad, the science, current, current, uh, current events, current issues, something good, something not so good, and then something sciencey. Alrighty, so this article is entitled "What You Need to Succeed Isn't Brains or Talent." So this is for the good. Once upon a time, a talent and drive were all that were needed to succeed, but the latest psychological research has discovered a third element of success that is so important it almost cancels out the others. It's called grit. Okay, And it's the latest management buzzword that is transforming what bosses and sports coaches expect from their staff and players. Performance and well-being coach Michelle McQuaid describes grit as passion and perseverance for long-term goals and the ability to stick it out no matter what, whether it be continuing to put in an effort for those tedious repetitive tasks that move you forward or picking yourself up after you've been knocked to the ground. 
Now, uh, now, gang, when I read this, did not understand the article at all, okay? Didn't understand what they were talking about between, uh, what the difference was between grit or determination. I was, uh, I was interested to, to get a bit of light from you guys, see what you think the difference is, because clearly it's a, uh, it's a big factor, according to psychological research. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, Mike, can you show me some light there? What, what do you think um, grit is in, uh, in, uh, in comparison to, to determination and perseverance? Fuck, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, know he's man. rolled you here, man. Yeah, I have. I've thrown totally, you right on the bus. Totally rolled you. <laughs> and the, and this study, this study is saying that there is a difference. Yeah, well, it's saying it's saying that grit is different to talent and drive. And I honestly think that drive and grit are the exact same thing. Well, drive's being driven to well, think, to try I think and drive try, is, try is and more ambition and. Yeah, I think I, I I equate drive more with ambition. Okay. I don't necessarily equate drive with with uh, determination or perseverance. I think yeah. I don't know. If, yeah, I'll if tell those you what are grit is. Then I, yeah. I need to. I need to be I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll tell send, you. I'll, I'll send you the article, man. I'll tell you what grit is. Grit is okay. Grit is having drive and passion and ambition, and then being able to push through when you get kicked in the face. So how does That's that differ from perseverance? Perseverance. Uh, you. I don't know. I didn't write the article, man. <laughs> but it says. <laughs> but that's McQuaid. Oh no, your name's Bill. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think. Um, I, I look. I don't know. Strange. I don't know about the difference in the in the wording, but I think. Um, yeah, determination and and drive and is probably something that gets you to point A, and then yeah. when you get thrown back to point B and sh- all over the shop with, you know, things that like aren't you going your way, then. Grit's what gets you through that, those tough times. I don't know if I said that so succinctly, but... Oh, that makes sense. What else you got, Tommy? Well, I actually, just on that quickly, um, think that enjoying the process is much more important than striving for the goal. Like, I found that with CrossFit, where it's, you know, I'm just enjoying the going there every day and having a bit of a laugh. Mm-hmm. And um, if I make that it anywhere, know. you know, pff, for great. Sure, for sure. Yeah. What's the bad... And that- Sorry, that goes for anything, really. 100%. Doesn't it? In, it? in the learning process. Yeah, like it took me a long time to uh, get that tribute out to you, mate. But I, <laughs> I gritted my teeth. I, was, I, was, I had perseverance there. <laughs> Alrighty, so the bad. Now, uh, the great Muhammad Ali, legend, or Cassius Clay, died recently at the ripe old age of 74 after battling a long and public fight with cancer. Some say probably his greatest fight. Guys, I only found out this recently, but he actually had Parkinson's for 32 years, which is pretty insane um, itself. Anyway, I wanted to ask you guys about some of the moments of Muhammad Ali's life that, that resonate with you. For me, it was that famous quote that he, uh, now wasn't obviously around when he said it, but um, when he said the quote was, ain't no Viet Cong ever called me nigger, yep. when he was uh, obviously um, asked to, to jump into the army and he said no. That was something that real. I mean, such a controversial thing and such a brave thing to say at the time. Do you have anything, Bill, that, uh, that you remember the great man by? Um, look, I wasn't prepped with this question before the show, so I would have come no. up with something different if I, if I, if I was. But um, sure. 100%, that I think the fact that he, um, he transversed from, obviously, the planet being a sp- huge sporting icon... Mm to a huge cultural icon was exactly what you just said there. So he, he didn't really mind um, what people thought of him. He didn't mind what the government thought of him. He wanted to stand up. Whether you, whether you, um, whether you agree with him not wanting to go to the war or, or not, go and, and serve for his country, whether you agree with that or not, I think everyone can see a real, um, a real courage yep. in the ability to say, I don't give a fuck. This is what I stand for. Yep. And this is what I'm going to say on the biggest stage. He was the most famous person in the world when he said that. Yes. You know, yep. to, to say that, I think it, um, 
it, that's why he, he wasn't the I mean he was as probably as good of a boxer not that I have seen every heavyweight boxer in history he's probably as good of a boxer has been around mm. in history but that's not why people call him the greatest yeah no that's 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 it's a, his showmanship and everything that goes with that has a huge part to play in why people call him the greatest but it's also because he stood for more than just sport yep um you know yep. whether uh, I personally I think that was his his greatest moment what about you Mike to be completely honest, I don't know a ton about Muhammad Ali. He, you know, he was completely done by the time I was born, but or or by the time I was old enough to watch television. But I, you know, going back and watching YouTube videos and and reading about him, I love how much of an entertainer he was, and that's that's one of the things I love most about uh, a lot of these MMA fighters today, like Chel Sonnen and um, who's the one out now? MMA um, Conor McGregor, notorious. MMA. Conor McGregor, right? They have such an ability to get people fired up and get people pissed off at them. And I just find it like that's a that's a an art and a craft in itself, right? Learning how to be confident enough and provoke people without like letting them provoke you as well. So yeah, you know his quote about I'm so I'm so mean I make medicine sick. I just you know, googled it. I just, yes. I just I just googled it. I, I read this to um, when yeah. he died the other day. I read this to my girlfriend in my best Muhammad Ali voice. So this is <laughs> go, this is go, my go. this is my favorite ever Muhammad Ali have to do the quote. I've wrestled with alligators. I've done tussled with a whale. I've done handcuffed lightning. I've thrown thunder in jail. <laughs> <laughs> you know I'm bad. Just last week I murdered a rock, injured a stone. Hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean to make medicine sick. That's so good. I love it. Very good. Very good. That's easily his best, nice. his best, best ever quote. I don't even know if he's dead anymore. <laughs> it's unbelievable. What a fucking legend. I, I, I don't know how he murdered a rock though. <laughs> I'd probably, you know, if he was still around, I'd probably ask him about the specifics of that one. <laughs> All righty. The, the science. Okay. Weird one here. We're going to take a complete turn here, lads. All right. Say hello to Hobbit's possible ancestors. Excavations of fossils from roughly 700,000-year-old hominids on the Indonesian island of Flores have reinvigorated scientific debate over the evolutionary origins and identity of Homo florinianesse. That's a regional dialect. A half-sized member of the human genus dubbed hobbits that lived much later on Flores. Now, these aren't the Lord of the Rings hobbits. Oh, no, Bill. They are not. These are hominids. Researchers are divided over what what the new finds imply about hobbit evolution. Nothing related to humans on Flores has a simple explanation. That was a quote. Says paleoanthropologist Maria Martion Torres, a university college uh, student in London. She now calls the discoveries puzzling and exciting. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but many people out there believe that descendants of hobbits are still around today. There's actually this TV show called, uh, oh, what's it called? On the Hunt for Monsters. Uh, and... These people go around and they try to find monsters that are believed to be, you know, not around. For example, like the Loch Ness Monster and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And there was an episode on Hobbits. Okay. okay? And um, some people think they're still around. There's anecdotal evidence. There's around, like, footprints. Yeah, which is pretty bizarre, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) Hobbits are pretty cool. I mean, they they saved the world from Mordor. I don't know about that. (laughs) So, people think they're still around. My question is to you. Let's start with you, Mike. What is the first thing you would do? If you uh, came across a hobbit, how would you react? <laughs> oh, I would just start asking questions, man. Yeah. yeah. 
What's like, what do you do in your spare time? Where do you come from? What's Where are Aragon the rest like? of you? Um, <laughs> yeah. What What do you know that I don't? I, I oh god, I would geek out on it. Yeah. I, to To be honest with me, I would be like, "Why don't you shave your feet? It's so fucking hairy. Like, it's so big. I mean, obviously that's some sort of survival evolutionary thing, but the hair. <laughs> You're a hobbit, aren't you, Bill? I'm a hobbit. Yeah, I'm a hobbit. Yes, what Tommy, what would you say, mate? Um, no, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a it's a very um, very good point you've raised, Tommy. Ah, thank and, you. <laughs> and I think we uh, I think we leave it there and move on. Good Beautiful. stuff. Essential question. Yeah, <laughs> it was an essential question. <laughs> Alrighty. So so when you um so let's get back into into some um some some good stuff here. So so after you you finished, you won two CrossFit Games with um with Hacks Pack, and then you had your back injury. So you had your discs fused and that, you said that, is that totally finished your athletic career? What is it? How much can you do? Um, what's your, you know, what's your day-to-day? Can you still work out? What, what can you get up to it these days? Oh, no, I've been in a wheelchair ever since. <laughs> I saw I'm, the... I'm just messing. I'm just messing. <laughs> I, uh, I felt I really I bad no for about three seconds there. <laughs> <laughs> I have no limitations at all. It's just a choice. Um, I... I now have less vertebrae to disperse load. So yep. if I, you know, if I'm going to do high training, high volume training, then less vertebrae are going to take more load, right? If I'm yep. doing back squat, front squat, yep. overhead squat, pressing, then those vertebrae on top of the ones I got surgery on are going to get abused. And then later on, I'll probably have to have more fusions done. And so because of that, I just choose not to train at the same volume. Now, I'm stronger than I've ever been. Uh, before the Open this year, I was the fittest I had ever been. So, And I have no pain. So well. it was a really great thing that happened and it allowed me to focus on my career and uh, coaching and all of that kind of stuff. So if you're stronger than you've ever been, where does most of your – are you still doing regular CrossFit or you're um... – where does most of your timeline, your day to day working out? Basically, just CrossFit classes. Oh, cool! Uh, since I've since I've been done, I haven't really done much more than that. I've done some of our brute compete workouts. Those those take sixty to ninety minutes a day, so that's right there in the my threshold. You know, ninety minutes is a little bit more than I want to spend in the, in the gym these days. But usually, I just like CrossFit classes. Man, people are yep. motivated, pushing each other. It uh, it gives you a wide variety of things to do, so that's what I usually do. Yeah, cool. So, all right. So if if you're the fittest you'd well before the open, you're the fittest you'd ever been, and you're the strongest you've ever been, and you do just doing the regular classes. Why why the volume training? Why is the volume needed? Is it just to refine skills? Is it to get your aerobic capacity up? Why when after what you just told me, why do you need to go and do two, three, four hours in a, in a day? To be able to recover. So I could do really, really well in the open, but then it would take me almost a full week to recover from that. Yeah. If I want to go to regionals and do well, I have to be able to do six, seven, eight workouts that are incredibly difficult and I need to be, you know, nearly fully recovered by the next one. And that is a very, very real thing. And it requires a a high training volume to be able to withstand that kind of, uh, 
that kind of workload, right? You, you sure. need to be able to recover. You, you need your, uh, you know, your body to recover, your joints to recover, uh, as well as mentally. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you had a look at the games last year and a lot of those athletes just were so cooked from that first day at comp with Murph and heavy DT and, and the snatch ladder and stuff. And it's funny, we were having this chat to, to Mitch about um, his training in the lead up to the games. And, um, you know, I, I would just would have thought, Bill mentioned before how he, you know, tends to train for that two hour mark and really hits, um, hits every, every workout with um, high intensity and high efficiency and, and all that sort of stuff. When the volume of the games, and like you said, regionals is so high, do you think that, how, how long would you appear, sorry, what am I trying to say here? How long a training period would it take for you to start increasing that volume in the lead up to those, to those events? How long would it take to, or how yeah, long would just, I spend in a high volume period? Well, in high, yeah, let, let's say like that. In a high volume period, would you give it sort of four to six weeks out of those uh, events where you start really ramping it up and and just really crushing your body to, to make sure that it's good. Couldn't you be doing um, the opposite? Well, I, yeah, look, I, I would have thought that tapering would be an idea, but <laughs> Mike, Mike's saying that, it's a, um, it's, I don't know. It is a ramping, <laughs> a ramping up before you're ramping down. So right? what would you do like a, if you like met a, a hobbit? Pyramid. <laughs> it's a ramp, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've just lost the question. What, if, what would I do if I met a hobbit at the CrossFit Games? <laughs> That's, what I'm, That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Man, I don't, I don't know. know. Ask Lucas Parker. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, no, but so how so how do you how do you um train your athletes in the lead up to regionals and the games and let's let's make it more general. So when the open ends, their their volume of training will go up for about four or five weeks. And then for the last two weeks, three weeks, like the third week it'll go down a little, and then two weeks out, we'll cut the volume just about in half. Right? The overall load we will cut in half. Right. So that's just, you know, that's been proven to be the most effective method of tapering an athlete. And you really won't know the, 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 the way to tell if you're tapered correctly is if you on that first workout on Friday, um, you just feel like you have so much energy and you feel explosive and you feel so excited. And the way you know you didn't taper correctly is if you feel flat, yeah. you, you get tired easier you're not that pumped right all of those types of things yep and just just so all the listeners at home know when you're when you're tapering like you mentioned you cut the load or the volume in half but the intensity and the percentage of of one rm stays the same is that right correct until uh, for us until three days out yes yes yep yep all right i think before we go any any further into coaching and programming and stuff with brute strength why don't you tell us a little bit about how you started brute strength and became um, the the Uber programmer that you are? Well, first, I, I got a job working, another job as a strength and conditioning coach at LSU. I wanted to see that career path through, and I really thought that was more exciting, training you know collegiate and professional athletes. Yep. And I quickly figured out that it wasn't for me, and I wanted to. I wanted to do my own thing. I, I like I said earlier, I don't like taking direct. I don't, don't like taking orders from anyone. I like to work for myself, make all my own decisions and stuff like that. So I decided to uh, start my own business, and that's where brute strength started. So I was already programming for a few athletes, uh, about thirty in Louisiana, with Matt Bruce, my current business partner, mm-hmm. and then. And then when I, I actually moved back to Utah again, I had moved to Louisiana somewhere in there, 
moved back to Utah to buy one of Tommy's gyms. And he said, hey, let's let's team up and, and we'll, you know, you can use my name kind of thing. And that's where that's where Brute began. We brought in a gymnastics expert, uh, Nick Sorrell, uh, um, Chris Henshaw for endurance, Sean mm-hmm. Pastuch for mobility and injury prevention. And we start bringing all of these experts together because what I saw was there were these great, you know, teams, these great training organizations, companies that were all run by one individual. One person was had to be the expert in weightlifting, gymnastics, CrossFit, endurance, yep. everything, right? And th- those guys were and still are today great at what they do. But it made sense to me coming from more of a traditional sport background where you have a, a quarterback who has his position coach. He has his athletic trainer, his offensive coordinator, uh, head coach, all of those coaches making sure that this one player has the, you know, the best opportunity to succeed and reach his potential. And so it made sense to me to treat these athletes just like, you know, we would treat a professional quarterback where they have an expert in every single one of these fields and we give them one program. The, the next problem is, you know, a lot of people, even when we started Brute, you know, one, one games athlete might have their own CrossFit coach, but they also might have a gymnastics coach that they go to once a week. They might have a running coach they go to. And what they're doing is they're, you know, they're basically programming for themselves. They're getting all of this programming and then they're choosing what to do. I, I I didn't really see that as the best way to do it. You don't see a quarterback making all of the plays or, you know, making up his own uh, footwork drills. So, again, using that analogy, I didn't see that as being the best way to do it. Yep. I thought that we coaches and, and me at the time being the director of strength and conditioning should put this whole thing together for them, right, and see how all of these different modalities interact with each other how they complement each other, how they, um, you know, making sure that we weren't giving people too much volume. Because if you take a pure weightlifting program and a pure gymnastics program and a pure running program and all of these and you slap them on top of one another, then you're just going to burn an athlete out, right? That's no way to train. 28 hours of work every day today. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Which is physically impossible. (laughs) What we... Exactly. So what we concerned ourselves with when we first started was just going back and forth and, and saying, hey, what do you need to see out of this program? What do you need to see? What, you know, what do you think of what I have over here, here, here? Right? And so it was a lot of back and forth, getting to know each other's disciplines, getting to know what the other needed and, and didn't need. And that's, just, you know, that's how we came up with the system that we have. Cool. It's also, you mentioned before how um, you didn't like the way how people, you know, you gave that quarterback analogy. It's funny as well. I found that um, in the, you know, the the two or three weeks that I'll, because I've got a coach that programs for me, but in the two or three weeks, you know, I'll spend where sometimes it'll just be me. You, you just start to naturally work on your strengths and things you love doing. Hey, like for me, you know, pistols for as an example, I'm just like, oh God, a fucking pistol. And I never do a pistol. Yeah. <laughs> you just start to, you know, you're really... Um, 
you pick and choose, which is not the best way, obviously, if you want to be a well-rounded athlete, especially when variance is the idea willed. with CrossFit. Yeah, you strong will to really focus on your weaknesses, which is what you should be doing. Oh, it, but, it is. But it is. For, I was the same. For me, I could never. <laughs> I, I never. I, I just snatch every day and do yeah. high-intensity, high um, heavy, right. fast workouts, which is what I was good at. Yep. You know, things like, um, things like Murph and Filthy 50, anything that would take 20 minutes plus, yep. I just, I hated, I wasn't good at, and I wouldn't really do. No. So, right. There's also this this part about just not having to do everything on your own. Look at Matt Frazier. Oh. He got he got second place at the games under Rich Froning, and he still chose to get a coach. Why? Because he didn't want to have to rely only on himself yeah. for that upcoming year, right? And we saw him get tremendously better. He yeah. you know he still got second, but he got tremendously better at everything. He was more confident. Um, he, he, you know, he, he wasn't as stressed out leading up to competition. Yeah, less pressure, all of that less because he had someone to rely on. Exactly. Absolutely. Yep. So how do you keep your athletes accountable then? Because that's basically what we're talking about now. We're talking about an accountability, um, an accountability coach to, to some extent. So how, do you, do you, how often do you check in with your athletes? Do they report back and say, hey, look, um, my hip was playing up. I, I couldn't get my squats in this week. You know, where's the where's is, is there an accountability factor there, and and um, how does it really work? That's a great question. So really, one on one, I only work with one person, and that's Brooke Entz. Uh, our check-in system is very informal. We we text several times a week. She tells me how her workout went. I give her feedback on that. I tell her if she needs to take anything away from her programming based on how she's feeling, if I think she needs to add anything, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, more formally, like what the rest of our athletes do is they check in with a coach once a week and they also interact on the online Facebook community. Uh, a lot of them daily. So they're holding each other accountable, right? As if yeah, they were cool. training together. And then they have a formal check-in with a coach once a week. That's great. So do they post their, do they post their workouts on this online community? And is that how it works? Yes. Or? Oh, yeah. So based off that, do you program fortnightly or how, how does your programming go? Because if, 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 uh, if a member checks in with a coach and says, oh, you know, I, uh, oh, I really feel like my, my lower back's tight or something and uh, heavy percentages are coming up for the next week, do you take that into account before you, before you let them go on with their training? Very good question. So the way our programming works is we assess people and then we put them into a group to train with basically. So if we assess you and your, your uh, biggest weakness is your strength, right? Your absolute strength, say, yeah. then we're going to put you on a program that emphasizes building strength. Now you're still going to work everything else, but it's going to be a little more strength biased, right? And so it's the same program for say 20, 30 athletes and the way that we individualize it, the, the gymnastics and the endurance are already individualized, but the way that we make those micro adjustments are if you see, if you're having back pain, then yeah, we're going to prescribe stuff on that check-in or you're going to talk to our, you're going to talk to Sean and Jeremy for mobility and injury prevention. Um, we're going to tell you, Hey, you need to, you need to stay away from pulling for two or three weeks all of that kind of stuff. And that, that, yeah, again, that takes place on that check-in. And I guess by hitting the, the intensity of the, your weakness. So if I'm, if I'm struggling um, with strength, all my intensity and my focus will be on my strength so that, you know, um, if I go to my gymnastics or I go to my mobility and stuff, I can still do that start, sort of stuff at lower, lower max. So I'm not going to, so I'm going to prolong my training basically. 
Say that again. It's not going to prolong. Yeah. So basically, I had no idea what I just said. Then I was just sort of agreeing <laughs> with you. <laughs> honestly, honestly. Hey, so for the <laughs> yeah, I've got um, I got an interesting question for you, um, Mike. So, so you just discussed um, you discussed weightlifting, cr- CrossFit, basically, um, so the CrossFit movements, gymnastics, mobility, and endurance. So, so there you've got pretty much high level coaches that are contributing to the brute strength program weekly and or fortnightly whenever the program comes out how do you rank those in in level of importance and can you or or is it is it just look these are these are the five crucial parts of pieces of the puzzle and you have to do these across the board for what athlete going to are you talking about a regional athlete or a games athlete this, um this yeah i just meant for to build. yeah okay so so your answer to that question is kind of it's varied, I suppose, between which athlete. Yeah, yeah, the, it, yeah there's ve- there are very clear differences on doing well at the open, doing well at regionals, and doing well at the games. There, are, there's a different order of importance. So let's take let's take you know open level athletes because that's probably most of the people that are listening to this. Yep. Um, for the for the open athlete, it's absolutely your aerobic conditioning, your aerobic power, right? So you need to be able to breathe uh, on top of that. And, and this, is, this is well, I would say researched, this is well analyzed looking at the open the past, uh, what, six, seven years, however long it's been online. Like we know what, we know what we've seen and the aerobic capacity has been the most important thing. After that is, are the Olympic lifts and not necessarily your one rep max, but your uh, probably more your efficiency at maybe your neuromuscular efficiency, right? How many reps can you hit at your 90% say? Yep. Uh, how good are you at submax loads? Can you maintain form? How much does it exhaust you? That, that would be the next piece. After that is basic gymnastics like total bar, pull-ups, box jumps, right? Those, those movements come up every single time and they have a huge impact on your performance. After that would be your probably your higher level gymnastics. Yep. Like muscle-ups, handstand push-ups. For yes. sure. And then once you hit, um, head to the regional level, would it be more of a and this is just just again on a on a macro level, it would be more high-level gymnastics is that when you would switch and say okay, the strength is there, the lifting's there, there's probably going to be more highly skilled stuff as we progress. You're, yeah, you're, you'll absolutely see uh, more highly skilled stuff in general, more highly skilled gymnastics. You're going to see a lot of heavier movements. And so that's where your one rep max has a, has a much larger impact, right? How, what, are your, what do your Olympic lifts look like? And what do your absolute lifts look like? We see a lot of athletes, and I, I don't want to name anyone, but there are athletes that have a very high snatch and clean and jerk because they're very efficient and they have great technique. But the, you know, the high rep snatches or the high rep squat cleans uh, at moderate to moderately heavy loads tend to crush them because their front squat, their back squat are not as high. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So your, your absolute lifts have a, have a much larger role at that next level. Yeah, cool. And then at the, on the, at the, at the end, uh, at the games, how, you know, how adaptable are you? How much, you know, how good are you with odd objects? Can you swim in the ocean? Can you run, you know, five to 15 miles? How good are you at like 
what I would consider more general fitness type things. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. Yep. So would you would you put a lot of that into your programming that that variance? I guess I I was having a think just then when you were um, talking about the the program as it goes from the open to the regionals to the games. Um, would you would you do a lot of swimming? Would you also do a lot of stuff with gymnastics that we we may start to see in the future of CrossFit? You know, one of those even higher skill level gymnastics exercises. Like I don't know. I guess like things like triple unders and maybe planches and else to to press and do you do you factor some of that stuff in? Uh, absolutely, and 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 very pretty heavily for some athletes. So I talked about that uh, gymnastics progression. We have people that are working on planche push ups. We do we do tr- leading up to regionals. We did triple unders twice a week. We do triple unders with everyone. If you can do a triple under really well, double unders are no longer a challenge at all, yes. right? So we've you know effectively taught hundreds of people now how to t- how to do triple unders. Cool. Um, so yeah, we're definitely working on those in part just to keep it fun, right? Yeah. We need to expose people to new exciting things so that they their buy-in stays high and they're they're having fun in the sport. Yeah, that's I guess this is the best thing about our sport is that you can never be perfect at everything. Exactly. So, how many people have you got on the um on the on the books with brute strength? Have you got athletes from all over the world? You got some Australian athletes, some high-level athletes? I imagine you'd have a lot of American athletes um, that are following the brute strength program. Wait, what was the what was the question? Have, like, do where, I have people from all over the world? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you? Yes. Yeah, where are yeah, you? Yeah, we have um, people from from every from every continent other than Antarctica. Uh, from from you know, probably forty or fifty different countries. Uh, they're all over the place. Wow, that's awesome. So, so what for you is the future of brute strength? Where do you see where do you see your program, your life, your coaching in five years' time, for example? I I, I just want to change people's lives, and and that today that looks like changing their lives mostly physically. Uh, but I, I want to teach people. I want to educate people to not have to rely on us forever. Uh, I want them to be able to coach themselves. I want them to be able to coach others. I want them to be able to. Um, change their lifestyle habits to eat better, to think better, to be happier, all of those types of things. And so, you know, two, five years down the line, I, I, I hope that we are providing extremely valuable content to people via video, blogs, podcasts, etc., to where if people want to learn something about health and fitness, we are the first people that they think about, right? They trust awesome. that if they want to learn about something in health and fitness, they can trust that we've done our homework and that we're, we're going to give them the most streamlined, like effective way of, of reaching whatever goal they want. Awesome. awesome. Great answer. That sounds great. So um, we, might, um, we might start to wrap it up a little bit, Michael, but before we do, we've got um, normally we have another co-host who's, uh, who's out for the moment. Normally we have three questions from the extra, so we call the segment nine from nine. But today there's just um, myself and Tommy, so it'll be six from six. Are you happy to field some quick rapid fire questions from us? Yes. All right. Excellent. Cool. So, are you a well-traveled man, Michael? Around the United States, yes. Not necessarily internationally. That's okay. not the first question, by okay. the way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> a, that's not the first question. Okay. So my, mine are travel-related. My um. My question, so I'll feel the first one. The first one is, what's your favorite destination on earth? Can be a small town, can be a big city, can be anywhere. 
Wait, say that. I, I, I miss what, what's going on. You said <laughs> sorry, I sorry, answered man. the first question. <laughs> no, no, sorry, <laughs> sorry man. That's me being an idiot. Um, no, no. So okay. So um, I do the, that from time to time. <laughs> the question. The question is, where is your favorite destination? on the planet it can be a small town it can be a city it can be a faraway country right. it can be anywhere it's uh grand isle louisiana we have this little beach house on the on the coast of louisiana it's not a pretty beach at all it's a it's a little fisher town fi- like fishing town yep and the what i love about it is one there's there's you know probably 120 years of family history of this this house. Have you all ever seen Swiss Family Robinson? Why does that name ring a Either bell? I haven't. Uh, no, I haven't. I it's know. just like uh, I don't. Yeah, go 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 check it out when yeah, you're done. Like, Hopefully, yeah. some people have seen that. It's like a Swiss Family Robinson house, but it, it's totally like I'm gonna go there in a week and a half, and I will probably be able to go out onto the beach, look side to side, and I won't see anyone for a quarter mile. Right? It's totally deserted. Uh, I can wow. I can totally disconnect from everything. And it's just uh, all I have is good memories there, lots of love, lots of great fresh seafood. So that's kind of my happy place. Yeah. Beautiful. Cool. Hey, I've, I've been to um, – I went to New Orleans um, just at the end of last year and it was so like weird but so cool. I'd never experienced anything like that. Just the, the swamps and like just oh, yeah. the – It's a great city. Yeah, the, the culture and um, I'm not sure if that's um, like it is for all of Louisiana but – God, it was cool. Hey, I just looked up Swiss Family Robinson. They all live in trees, man. <laughs> right, it's similar. It's, it's awesome. Similar. Yeah. Real genuine monkeys. <laughs> um, yeah. All right, so the second one for me is what's your dream destination? So somewhere you haven't been that's just number one on the bucket list. New Zealand. New Easy. Zealand. Yeah, cool. Wow, that's I have, a, to, go there. I have uh, to go there. We did a, we did a couple of our adventure trips. The first two actually were to New Zealand. We did North and South Island. And... Um, in the space of eight days, we went on a five or six hour caving um, adventure in Waitomo Caves, which we 30 meter abseiled down into the caves. We zip lined through the cave. We cliff dived into a um, rafting setup where we blackwater rafted through glowworm caves. That's, the, that's, that's caving, right? That's the caving. Next, mm-hmm. we did the um, we walked through Mordor from Lord of the Rings, the Tongariro Alpine Circuit. Nice. It was sick. Yeah. Rotorua was a geothermal hotspot with um, geysers and, and um, <coughs> lava pools. And, uh, and then that's all the North Island. Then we went down south and um, we went to Franz Joseph Glacier and we, did, we got lowered down into crevasses and climbed out with ice picks and crampons. It's just... Wow. It's just... There's so the, much there, isn't there? The scenery, the scenery, there's so much to do. We went to Queenstown after that, which is a whole other story. But there's so much to do and it's so pretty. New Zealand is sick. You've mm. definitely got to get there. Yeah, man. I just I want to get lost in that like green mountainous oh, area, like yeah. around around where the hobbits were, somewhere around there. We well, went to uh, we went know, to Hobbiton. Maybe able to speak to them. Yeah. <laughs> we went to uh, we went to Hobbiton on the second trip. It was so much fun. It was like being little kids. Yeah, you know? yeah. we're just running around, big smiles in our faces. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, amazing. Yeah, it was good. So my last question is: If you're on a desert island, and you've got three things to keep you sane, um, not to keep you alive, and they can't be people, but to keep you sane. Oh three go-to things, what would they be? Um, a spike ball net. Cool. Oh, cool. 
I don't know how I'm going to play that with myself. Have, but I have no idea what it is. So yeah. I don't know how you're going to do it either. <laughs> it's, a, it's like volleyball, but instead of hitting the ball over the net, you're going to hit it down onto like this tiny trampoline. Oh, yeah, I know. Which, uh, uh, yes. And it's played of like teams of two. It's amazing. Right. Yep. I used to have one of those. Cool. You guys should play one time. We should. <laughs> we'll go to the same island. <laughs> yeah. What else What else you got? To keep me sane. Shit, that's hard. Um, I would bring – can I bring like a – I'd bring like probably some series of books, say like Lord of the Rings, so yeah. that I can go Good. over and over and over. Yep. You can bring a Kindle. You can bring a Kindle with a with a oh. um, with a solar powered solar powered setup. If <laughs> is that you want. right? Yeah, the thing yeah. is, is that right? That's two things. Then, yes, we that let, would be it. <laughs> we let someone else. We let someone else do that on um, a previous show. So we'll give you the Kindle. I'm, I'm stealing that. Yeah, yeah. fuck the, the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> you can't fit that shit Kindle. in your bags anyway. <laughs> and then probably just a guitar. Oh yeah, oh, nice. I think I can, I can keep my keep myself entertained for you know hundred hundred years. In a, with a guitar. Play some Puddle of Mud. Good stuff. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I would nail, nail that song. Yeah, I'll, I'll teach it to you one day. <laughs> Thank you. Alrighty. Um, so, Mike, what do you like to do in your downtime? In my downtime, I like to spend time with people. Um, and in, in like specifically, I, I love like just deep conversations of whatever magnitude, whether it be something I'm passionate about whether it be something where you know we we just saw on Netflix or what somebody else is passionate about, I, I love just diving into w- what other people think is interesting, nice, stuff like man. that. Um, I love nature in general. I I don't think I could ever get out enough, but anytime I can disconnect and get lost in nature, I'm pretty damn happy. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll have you on the show again, man. We'll just have a massive like philosophical science <laughs> chat. We like to do that Sweet. from time to time. <laughs> Sweet. Alrighty. Uh, second question: biggest role model growing up, or or can be a current biggest role model if you have one. Um, I, I'm going to give you two. Sure. Because very, very different. The the one constant in my life has been my father. Uh, he is the he's the best person I think I've ever met. He always thinks of other people first, whether it be his children, whether it be a stranger or whether it be somebody that he thinks fucked him over. Right. He's always trying to think about everything from the other person's perspective. He's always trying to see where he could do something better in any situation. Um, he's very, very hardworking, taught us to be hardworking, good people. So that's that's been my my biggest role model in life. Cool. Probably my biggest role model in the past three years is Tim Ferriss. You guys know Tim yeah. Ferriss? Yeah, yeah, very well. So I, you know, the, my first exposure to Tim Ferriss was obviously the four-hour work week. I can remember driving from Texas to Utah, and that was the first time I listened to his book, and and my life just immediately changed. I'm I, I'm like, holy shit. I don't have to make a million dollars to be happy. All I have to do is make enough money so that I have the, t- the time to do the things I want to do, yep. right? That, that sounds really simple, but most people don't think of it that way. They just, they're on the, rat, they're on the uh, hamster wheel and they're trying to make more money, more money, more money, and they're delaying their happiness for retirement and mm-hmm. stuff like that. So that, that was my first exposure to him. And since then, you know, I've picked up things like uh, stoicism, um, different 
you know, Buddhist practices and stuff like that. Have you read? So um, he's. Have you read Meditations from Marcus Aurelius? I've read a little bit of it, and I've read a uh, a guide to the good life, which yep. is like a summary of a bunch of those, and that's that was one of the best books I've ever read as well. Yeah. Um, so he's taught me more than anyone, like just through his books and podcast about uh, business, as well as just like practical how to live a, a more happy and fulfilling life. Right. He just seems like the kind of dude that has a lot of the the right things figured out. And uh, it's super inspiring and motivating to you know follow him and learn from him. I think the uh, I think the best analogy for me I've I read the four hour work week and then I listened to it six months later. I listened to it about a second time about three months ago. And the best going off what you were saying, the best analogy that he has in the book it might even be from an analogy from Rolf Potts. He always talks about vagabonding his favorite book, but it's talking about the um, the guy that's working. Um, busting his gut, working year after year after year so that he can finally go and um, when he's old enough to retire so he can go and ride his motorbike across China. And uh, that's, the, that's the analogy that he uses when, you know, there's small things you can put in place with any, any role in life that you have right now that you can go and you can, you can do stuff like yeah, that. You, you know, you can... Exactly. Exa- exactly. I'm, a, yeah, I'm a big Tim Ferriss fan. Did, have you listened to the latest podcast with Kevin Kelly, the artificial intelligence one? No, how is it? Oh man, it's mind blowing. It's about virtual reality nice. and and artificial intelligence and the future. He's the right. he's the editor of Wired magazine. It's about the future that right. is like twenty years away or five ten years away. Nice. And um, that was one of the latest ones. It's it's absolutely mind boggling. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. good. It's good. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a thirty hour car ride ahead of me, so oh. I'm gonna uh, check that out. There you go. We'll listen to this one seventeen times, and then listen <laughs> to the ten Ferris one. <laughs> hey, uh, final question, mate. This is a tough one to, uh, to ask, but I actually do like just putting uh, our guests on the spot because I want to see what they say. If you could invite three people to dinner, dead or alive, who would they be and why? And you can't say your family. Um, let's just assume that your family are already there. Yes. Yep. <laughs> that would first actually one. be that would be the first person. Yep. Um, that would be the first. Let's go with... Oh shit, man! <laughs> it's That's tough. so hard. I'm, I'm gonna go with uh, I'm gonna go with uh, Kobe Bryant. Oh, cool. Okay. And what's uh, that? Brene Brown. Brene, Brene Brown is a uh, she's a uh, shame researcher, fear and shame researcher. She's a psychologist, and she wrote a few books. And she has uh, one of the most downloaded TED talks of all time called the power of vulnerability her her book her, all of her research is just incredible and it's um it's changed a lot of people's lives in my life right i've, I've given her book away probably 20 times and uh i i always get back this book changed my life i couldn't stop crying and and wow, and really? then it you know it goes on to make them a better person so wow. definitely her what was the name of the book sorry um, the most, the most famous book is probably Daring Greatly. I'd start Daring with Greatly. that one. She's got a few okay. different books on different topics, but go watch the, uh, go watch on YouTube, uh, the power of vulnerability. And if you like it, then go, bu- then go buy the book. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty yeah. sure I've seen that, uh, that Ted talk because give I went through the, rundown. what is it? No, I, I couldn't give you a rundown, but, um, I'm actually going to a Ted on Sunday, Mike, TEDx in really? St. Kilda over in, in Melbourne here. Yeah. Yeah. We got, um. 
tickets at the last minute. So pretty excited for that. I like nice. getting into my TED Talks. Have you, uh, uh, hey Mike, have you seen the Graham Hancock TED Talks by any chance? I, I think I have. I know I've listened to a lot of his stuff on uh, like Joe Rogan and oh, other yeah. podcasts. I'm not sure if I've actually seen his TED Talks. For, it was a, uh, Bill and I were just having this discussion before. It's, um, it was apparently super controversial and it was banned for a bit. And um, Bill and I couldn't figure it out why, but it's an amazing TED Talks. All the stuff that he goes about on with Joe Rogan with um, psychedelic drugs and his theories about um, right. you know, the human race and all that sort of stuff. He just really condenses all that into a really good sort of 17-minute clip. So listeners out there, uh, get on to Graham Hancock and Brene Brown. I'm, uh, I'm reading a Graham Hancock book at the moment, actually, Supernatural, about the, nice. the, way, that we, um, the way that humans um, came to consciousness. I'm only at the very start, but it's pretty awesome at the moment. So, yeah, Graham Hancock. Yeah. His theory was that monkeys ate the shrooms from cow shit. Is that what it was? <laughs> um, the, books are, the, the books are like a 900-page book, so I'm sure there's... That's what there's the one page. <laughs> yeah. um, so, basically, guys. <laughs> um, all right, cool. Excellent. So, so Mike, um, is there anything you want to plug before we, before we finish up? When is this going to be released? This will be released uh, on Tuesday, the 14th, four days. All right. So when you hear this, guys, we are going to be about, or rather on about the 21st of June, we're going to relaunch our program, Brute Body. If you want to look better naked, get way stronger, check that program out. Registration will only be open for a couple of weeks. Uh, We've had about... Um, let's see, we're about 10 weeks into the first go round and we have like some amazing transformations in people. And if you want to learn more about our training programs, check out the games prep. That's, you know, like, like we've been talking about that that's for people that want to go to regionals or the games or brute compete, which is that program condensed into a 60 to 90 minute block. So we take the most important pieces from each day and we, you know, make it doable for the person that has a full-time job or a kid, et cetera, that doesn't have three or four hours a day to train. Um, and you can find all of those at brutestrengthtraining.com slash pot, uh, programs. And um, if you like podcasts, check ours out, Brute Strength Podcast. Cool. There you go. Awesome. And yourself, any links to yourself? Um, any Instagram handles? You want to get a couple more followers? Or <laughs> where, can find, where can they find you? <laughs> that never hurts. Yeah. Um, you can find me personally at Michael Cashew, that's C-A-Z-A-Y-O-U-X. Or you can follow Brute Strength at uh, Brute.Strength on Instagram, Brute Strength underscore on Twitter. Um, those are the best places to follow us. Cool. Awesome, man. All righty. Well, that's about it from us, Michael. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, man. Absolutely, man. It was a blast. Thanks Sweet. for the song again. I, I'll <laughs> uh, keep that with me for a while. Yeah, awesome. Next time you're on, man, I'll have another one ready for you. <laughs> All righty. Perfect, man. Cool. And All that's, right, guys. That, have a good one. That's a wrap. All righty, guys. Hope you enjoyed that one. Hope you got a bit from that. We actually spoke a lot about... Uh, his, uh, his training methodology and um, some specific things that you guys can take away, not just as CrossFitters, but as, uh, as everyday people as well. So hope it was informative and fun, and I bloody hope you loved that tribute, guys. Jeez, I was on point there. Very, very good. All right, let me flick it over to uh, Bill. What's your middle name, Bill? Raymond. Don't Raymond. tell anyone that. I fucking hate it. <laughs> All right, I won't tell anyone that's listening to this. Bill Raymond Kerr. Um, <laughs> All right, my, so my... if you like the show, guys, Go on and subscribe on iTunes. That'll really help us out. 
We put a lot of time and effort in this show. We have some guys that help us out doing the editing abroad. And uh, it's more work than you would imagine to start up a, a podcast like this. So helping us out by subscribing would be fantastic. You can also find the show notes from anything in this show at www.adventurefittravel.com forward slash podcast. And also make sure you head to Audible for your free audiobook and 30 month, uh, 30 week, 30 day, fuck, 30 day trial. That's at www.audibletrial.com forward slash ADVF radio. And last but not least, check out www.adventurefittravel.com. Check out all our trips we've got coming up. And see you next week. Boom.